This interview was recorded on February 23rd, 2021. Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Cesare Pautasso. Based in Lugano, Switzerland, Cesare is a professor at the Software Institute at USI Lugano, whose research focuses on the architecture, design, and engineering of next-generation web information systems. You can follow him on Twitter at Pautasso and check out his website at pautasso.info. Cesare is the author of a number of books, including Software Architecture, Visual Lecture Notes, Just Send an Email, Anti-Patterns for Email-Centric Organizations, and most recently, Beautiful APIs. In this interview, we're going to talk about his background and career, professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a bit about his experience experience using LeanPub to self-publish. So thank you for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Thanks to you, Len. It's a pleasure. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up uh, and how you first became interested in computers and technology. Okay, so I was born in, uh, in Como, in the, north, uh, the northern part of Italy. I think you, you might have heard about uh, the place because there is a beautiful lake. And uh, there is a Bellagio, which I think every, everybody has heard about. And um, my first computer was actually a Commodore VIC-20. So by this reference, I think you can figure out how old I am. And uh, at that time, uh, the software would come printed in magazines. And we would actually spend hours and hours typing it in, in the computer just to see what, what would happen. And um, at uh, 16, I had the opportunity to spend uh, one year as an exchange student in the US. And that's uh, uh, the time when uh, long distance calls were super expensive. There was no WhatsApp, there was no Zoom, right? It's amazing what, uh, what we're doing now, video conference, high quality video conferences over eight time zones for free. But at that time, um, we were just used to write long letters to, to keep in touch. And uh, in, the, in the US, uh, I also I got to learn about uh, bulletin board systems. That was also a, a new experience for me uh, related to, to technology. And when I came back, there was no doubt that I was going to study computer science at the university. The, the big question was whether I would go to the Polytechnico, the technical university, or the university, which I had a shorter four-year program. And uh, when I started the, the computer science engineering degree, I spent the first year studying math, physics, chemistry, electronics, and also one lecture on fundamentals of informatics. And uh, that time I was uh, really wondering whether I got into the right track. But uh, I think it was great to, to do theory and to do that kind of broad theory because you uh, do not just understand uh, what uh, computer science is about, but you also get a chance to look a few layers underneath to see to understand what is really going on inside the, the machine. And I think uh, uh, we managed to touch our first computer um, after a couple of years when we convinced an assistant to let us, to let us into a lab uh, where we could actually go and try out uh, some of the programs that we would write on, on paper. So at, at that time, university education was very theoretical, but I think it's also an advantage because we didn't spend time learning things that would become obsolete anyway. So that was uh, good to get a foundation of things that are actually true still today. And then we were able to pick up everything else uh, on, on our own. Uh, I, I remember uh, at the end of the summer, one junior professor one day, at the end of his course, he, he said, by the way, uh, there is this thing called uh, the web 
and he gave a, a brief uh, introduction about how, how links uh, were implemented. And then you said, you can go to a conference we are hosting here by the lake, and you can try it. And then they had a few computers running one of the first versions of Netscape. And uh, I, I got uh, immediately, uh, how do you say, uh, really Hooked. was it truly amazing how, how you could just navigate around the world uh, you know, talk to computers uh, all over all over the place just by clicking uh, on some links. So that was sort of getting the the end of my university studies, and uh, I, I was lucky to find um, a thesis project uh, as part of an Erasmus exchange. So I, I left Italy to go north of the Alps in uh, in Zurich, in uh, in Switzerland, at the the ETH in the Information and Communication Systems Group. And uh, there, they actually had lots and lots of computers. They had computers everywhere. Uh, I think they were running something called Sun Solaris. That was also an incredible discovery. And, and they were trying to, to basically use them to, to recycle unused computing cycle, like at night over, over week, weekends, uh, to run some, uh, some complicated computation made out of lots of data. Um, and um, I think uh, later, the this was something that they called the scientific workflows or just big data processing. And uh, we were managed to, to run that over the transition between 1999 and 2000. That was supposed to be the, you know, when the clocks would switch and everything would crash, but actually our, our system could just keep running and, uh, and get to the result. So the project was successful. But uh, as every, every research project that you do, you, you sort of climb a hill and then you can see the big mountains ahead. So I was really lucky to, to get uh, an offer to stay in the group as a PhD student. And uh, that basically means that I am still figuring out how to extend my Erasmus, uh, you know, my, my research exchange today uh, because I never came back home basically after that. I, I was, uh, you know, moved to Zurich. I spent there many years. And then I, I also was uh, in the IBM research lab uh, on the Lake of Zurich. And then afterwards, I, I came, became a professor in 2007. Yeah, so that's a long time ago in, in Lugano here at the new university that had a brand new faculty of informatics and uh, have been here ever since. Uh, that's really interesting. So um, I didn't know about uh, your uh, year in the United States or about the Erasmus, that you'd uh, been a part of the Erasmus program. Um, can, was, were you part of a particular program when you went to the United States or was that, you know, something specific to your school that had an exchange program or something like that? Oh, that, that was the AFS uh, exchange program, AFS. Uh, the American Field Service. Yes. Okay. Okay, okay. And and actually, if you wouldn't mind taking a couple of minutes to talk about the Erasmus program, that's actually something I've interviewed a, a, a couple of lean pub authors who, who participated in it. I think both of them met their spouses uh, and, and, and both of them permanently stayed away from their home country after participating in this program and never looked back. Um, can you talk a little bit about that really amazing program for just a, a moment? Oh yes, it's a, for sure. It's a, it's a really it's a really important program to to build uh, future generations of, of European citizens because uh, in, the, in the age where they are starting to become independent, they, they are studying in the university. They get a chance to spend one semester, one year uh, in a, in a different universities, and and it's not a, a random choice. Uh, it's typically universities uh, form uh, exchange networks. So you know, for for example, in Lugano, we we have connections with. Uh, uh, with Spain, uh, with uh, Eastern Eastern Europe, with uh, we used to also have them for with the UK, but um, you know, um, 
advised by by their professors they they can find uh, relevant uh, studies to to basically you know do in the other place the from a how do you say from a logistical point of view there is a little bit of, of support and uh, i think it's really great uh, to not just uh, continue their studies and have the opportunity to see a different university but also to see a different culture a different country a different language and like you said, make friends uh, all, all across Europe and maybe also, you know, fall in love and meet somebody that is not uh, from their native country. So this is really important to, to mix together the, the European uh, population, I think. And I think one of the one of the interesting sort of uh, challenges that people uh, face when they participate in programs like that is um, different university systems. Uh, and I'm curious uh, about the way it works in Switzerland. Um, is it, you know, I mean, most of the people listening to this pod podcast are probably from North America, or at least familiar with the North American education system where you, you know, go from kindergarten to grade 12. And then if you do a university degree, it's typically a four-year degree where each year there are two terms and in each term you take, you know, say five courses or something like that. Uh, how does an undergraduate degree, I mean, I guess, let's say currently uh, work in work in Switzerland? Well, the, um, how do you say, the, the lower part of the education before the university is actually managed by each canton of Switzerland, so like each state, uh, so they have a different system, but once they get to the university, then this is actually standardized at the European level. So this means uh, that you first do a three-year bachelor, and then you do a two-year master program. Uh, and between the between the, the two levels, you can actually switch universities. So you don't, you know, typically students will do three years in one place, and then they go somewhere else for, for the other two. And after that, you can also do a doctorate or a PhD. And is, is it really expensive, or is it cheap, or is it in between? Well, I suppose it depends uh, relative to yeah. what, right? So yeah, that's uh, true. Uh, but is it? I mean, you know, I mean, people, you know, might hear, you know, it costs sixty thousand dollars a year to ascend, attend, say, an Ivy League university in the United States. Is it? Is it a similar kind mm -hmm. of, of absolute burden on people? No, no, no. Compare compared to that, uh, the tuition fees here are much lower. Okay. Uh, I think okay. actually in, in Lugano we are the most expensive university in Switzerland, and the students will pay. Uh, 2,000 francs, so well, approximately $2,000 if they are Swiss, and otherwise 4,000 if they come from uh, elsewhere. But that that will be for one uh, semester. Okay. Okay. And so it's a. So it's that, a I guess that gives you a reference point. And then yeah. other universities in Switzerland are even cheaper than that. And is it two two semesters per year, and then like four months off or something like that? Uh, yes, actually, we just got started this week so that's a spring semester and we will continue until uh, the beginning of june okay and then there is a summer break and then we start again in september and continue until before christmas basically okay so okay that, that, those are the two two semesters so. okay okay uh that actually leads me on to the something I, I i introduced it's been it's been almost a year now but for a year almost a year i've been saying since march um, <laughs> I've, I've tried introducing a, a segment uh, into the podcast where we ask the guests about their experience of the pandemic and how it's just affected their life in the particular place where they live, which is interesting because we get to interview people from all around the world on the podcast, but also how things have affected them professionally. And uh, you're a professor. Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, how things have affected, uh, just, just a little bit of like an anecdote or two about how things have affected life in Lugano and then how things have changed for you professionally during this time. So for example, did people start wearing masks early on? Have they ever started wearing masks outside? Uh, what's it been like? Well, 
Okay, so well, approximately yes, it's already been one year. Uh, that was the time when they they started to have the first cases uh, south of the, the. Basically, here we are very close to Milano. That's that's where, you know, the region of Italy where where the first cases were detected, and so they had this uh, situation in which. Uh, they were starting to lock down and having having problems, and then the rest of Europe would actually uh, just watch and, and, and wonder what is going on down there in in, in Italy, especially Switzerland. Uh, we were kind of uh, privileged not not to have a, a strict lockdown like like they had on the other side of the border. Uh, and uh, but but yes, there is a border, and uh, you wouldn't feel it before, but now now it's serious. Uh, if you want to cross it, you have to have a past uh, a check, right? You have a test. Um, and uh, that uh, basically before before one year ago we would just go to Italy uh, every other day and and now this is uh, no longer possible. So that uh, definitely uh, it's a different world that we are living in now. Uh, you know, as a, as a scientist, we are part of a global global community of, of, of researchers of, of scientists that uh, meet meet each other visit each other, uh, you know, exchange ideas and, and, and travel the world, uh, present at conferences. And, uh, you know, all of these type of uh, meetings where, where you have a big crowd gathering together, uh, I think they, they will not uh, come back for a, for a long time. But as opposed to, for example, people living from uh, like musicians or, or, you know, actors in the, in the theater or, or these kind of things that have been severely affected, uh, we are sort of privileged because we can still keep teaching uh, through through uh, remote, uh, you know, virtual classes, and and also we can keep doing research and publishing papers, and uh, we just don't get to travel around the world to present uh, our work and, and discuss with others. We do it over Zoom, so we definitely are suffering from uh, from Zoom fatigue. And so you've been you've been teaching over Zoom to your students. Uh, yes, yes. Basically, now it's uh, we 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 started the the last last year spring semester. We actually started in person because it was the time where things were totally uncertain, and so we started in person because we didn't know. And at certain point, there was actually a big decision from from the top to to close the university and switch to to remote teaching. But we didn't lose even one day of school. Everybody was already ready for that. And, uh, you know, I'm proud to say that in, in the master program that I direct everybody, you know, the student didn't lose a single day. So that, that was a tra transition that we could manage. And now uh, we did also the, the fall semester and the, the spring semester is starting online. And uh, everybody's hoping that by the time we get to the summer, we can do the exams in person. But, uh, you know, it's difficult to predict. That, uh, and uh, just anecdotally, um, how have how have you found students to be adapting to it? Have they been, has it been kind of, you know, they, they've, they're, you know, as a, it's a bit of a sort of like funny term, but are they, you know, digital natives? And so it's no problem for them to just switch from being in person to being on Zoom? Uh, well, I was, for example, in, uh, in my group, right, my, my PhD students, I, I have uh, two, two new PhD students that arrived just before the, the, the lockdown. So they were really lucky to, to make it here on time. Otherwise, it would have been difficult to, to move to, to Switzerland. And uh, and then so we were able to get started in, in, the, in the way that it's supposed to be. And then now, of course, we are just collaborating uh, remotely. Uh, and uh, yeah, occasionally we st still run into each other because we, we are all nearby, but uh, it's not definitely not the same. And and for the students that come to lectures and, and so forth, we we yeah we we see that uh, they still manage to to learn and uh, pass pass exam. So then. 
of course of course uh, it's it's tough for, for them because you are not just uh, isolated at home you know participating in all the all these lectures and you have to keep keep awake and, and keep keep uh, keep participating uh, through through the computer but but also you i think the social aspect is also is also a big problem right because uh, yes they can have all the all their virtual chat forums and so on but it's it's not the same as hanging out in the campus and oh definitely yeah and particularly at the level where you're doing where you're doing research i mean you know it's it's a bit ineffable but the, the kinds of things that happen to you were mentioning conferences and get-togethers and things like that the kinds of things that happen when you're just around other people who are thinking about things on the boundaries of knowledge it's very hard to replicate that in kind of scheduled encounters yes there was a, there was a virtual conference that i spent last last week on ending and they had during the breaks they had a, they switched from zoom to something called gather.town and then basically that's where you can see your avatar and you can walk it around and they built um, it was supposed to be in this uh, in this castle in germany right very far off place where people do kind of a, like retreats and so you had a, a, a recreation of the castle and people could walk around and when you bump into somebody else because you happen to be in the same room for example then you can actually again chat over the video and that would sort of replicate the, the serendipity of the coffee break of course, uh, although you leave Zoom and you go to the other tool, you're still sitting at the desk in front of the computer when you just would really physically would like to walk around and stretch a little bit. So that's uh, very difficult to, to keep doing this for next time. Yeah, it's difficult to, to, to see what the future will be like, but to, to, to be able to do, yeah, to keep uh, together uh, the connections uh, alive uh, in the scientific community over long periods of time like this, that will be very challenging. Uh, that leads me to ask a, a, a version of a question that I ask on uh, almost every uh, interview when the when the guest is a, a lean pub author and there's someone who's sort of in the you know technology world, which is um, if someone were to the version I'll ask you because you're actually a professor is um, if if someone wanted a career being a, a software developer and they they were skeptical about the value of a four-year university degree or a three-year university degree when there are so many resources available for learning online what would you say to them to convince them that they that they ought to or that or that uh, depend or what would you ask them to try and find out if actually studying at university a computer science degree was a good idea for them um well they can still you know try to get into this uh, google's program and they learn everything they need to learn in 6 months so why 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 should they invest uh, 4 years of, of their life to get a formal education in the university and what i could use to tell you last year it was that well you are going to be physically together with a group of uh, like minded students and uh, a professor that care about your education and then you you know that that will give you something that you don't get by just uh, watching videos uh, at night uh, from from some random YouTube channel, uh, so I that that is more difficult to to sell now because of course uh, we are all <laughs> virtualized, and and uh, that that basically uh, you know um, when when you when when they virtualize the the re religious uh, masses in in Italy. People could watch uh, the go to the service on on TV, yeah. But then everybody wanted to watch the Pope. Uh, so the local the local uh, churches had a, a little bit of a competition problem. 
So if you, if you translate the same in, uh, in university education, of course, uh, the moment that we are virtualized and this opens up uh, between uh, uh, you know, competition at, at a very different level. So uh, what, uh, what is still important, uh, however, is uh, the fact that you as a student uh, participate in a, in a curriculum that is uh, thought out uh, as a whole. And uh, you, you are not just going to learn from a random collection of, of tutorial videos, but you, you get uh, deeper and you try to uh, learn things that will remain with you for your whole career. And they will make it possible for you to learn how to learn and keep uh, up to date uh, with, uh, with technology. And that's, I think, is, uh, is the value of a university education that is uh, deeper and it goes to the foundation that uh, in a certain discipline is not going to change so quickly as the latest buzzwords right because in, in, in computer science in the industry every six months or, or every every year there is a new trend that you have to uh you know keep keep running to stay in the same place yeah to uh to put my cards on the table i'm i'm firmly in the camp of i think um for the most part when one is young one ought to spend a few years in study and uh regardless of, of what your plans are what you think your plans are for your life and the things that you can learn at a very deep level when you've actually taking like years to learn about them from people who've gone through it and know are profound. That's really interesting what you say about all of a sudden the local priest has to compete with the Pope when things go online. I hadn't thought about that, but you know, if, if people are attending virtual concerts, you know, it's going to be, it might not be the local, local person with a guitar. It's going to be, you know, Bruce Springsteen instead. <laughs> and that would be difficult, difficult to, uh, to compete with. So just before we go on to talk about your books, uh, in the next part of the interview, I just wanted to ask you if you wouldn't mind for a couple of minutes talking about the kind of research that you're doing currently, maybe if there's a particular project that you're working on or something like that. Um, I work in uh, the boundary between uh, software architecture, uh, web engineering and business process uh, management. And at the moment, uh, our current project is uh, on API analytics. So we try to uh, study how people design APIs and uh, how can they do it uh, better. And that's also, you know, one of the results of the project was also the, the book on beautiful APIs that uh, just came out. Uh, and then I, I also have an, another project that, uh, which combines together concepts from uh, business process management and, and the blockchain. This is a new collaboration with the HPI Institute in Potsdam in Germany. And at the moment, we are looking for students to, to help uh, on, on this particular project. So I'm, that's why I mentioned it explicitly. So if you, if you know how to program the blockchain and you would like to run processes over it, uh, come talk to me. Uh, that's really interesting. Hopefully, um, I'll be able to ask a couple of, of related questions to that when we when we talk about about the APIs book. But yeah, that, no, that's really fascinating. Um, and and I, I think I think I might be able to see a connection between that and microservices and 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 stuff like that, and how you manage backing up systems and stuff like that, which is something I I, I watched a talk that you gave. Uh, that was on YouTube about that. And I'm, I'm suspecting there might be a connection between those things uh, and blockchain. Uh, but before we do that, um, I really like mentioned this before we started recording. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about your book from quite some time ago. Just send an email, Anti-Patterns for Email-Centric Organizations. So I know it's been a uh, some time since you wrote it, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the book is about and what your inspiration was for uh, writing that one. Okay, so, so that book... Um... 
is, uh, is about a collection of uh, anti-patterns. So basically things that people do because it's easier to do them this way, but they have a negative inf influence. So in the, in the case of, of email, it's, uh, it's easier, for example, for, for the sender to, to act in a certain way, and then the recipient has to pay the price. And uh, this is uh, actually quite quite large collection that it's all, all based on uh, my personal real world experience and also the, of other people that, that, that I work with. And it happens that when you, you know, what's the first thing that you install when you digitalize your company? You know, imagine that you have a company that uh, people don't have computers, then you actually install computers. And the first thing that you have is the email, right? Everybody can send messages to each other. So congratulations, uh, you are now a digital company and you can make all of the mistakes that I list in the book and you shouldn't do them. You should try to learn how to use email appropriately. And uh, you know those those uh, those patterns, all those anti-patterns, they all come with a with a solution, with a, with a proposal, how how to do it better. Uh, for example, when you try to send an email, think about it, and maybe you don't have to send it. <laughs> this is also part of, of the experience of. Uh, I think this is a problem that is shared uh, when uh, your working life uh, requires to handle hundreds of emails every day, and then you you start to detect some things that. Would actually be done a little bit more efficiently. Yeah, I mean, my yeah, that's mine. Mine does, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, definitely. It's I've, I've never formalized things the way you have in your book, but um, you know, one of one of my uh, there, you know, there's an old Mark Twain joke, which is he was writing someone a letter and he said, "I'm sorry, I wrote you such a long letter. I didn't have time to write a shorter one." And there's a, there's an email version of that for me, which is there's a certain kind of person who thinks they're saving time by writing a short email. When if you just took a little bit longer to actually give all the details that you need, so it's kind of like, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm I'm writing you, like, how would you how would you formulate it? Like, I'm oh, sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm writing you a, a, such a short email. I have a lot of time on my hands, uh, <laughs> so I can get away with writing you a short email because that means there's going to be a lot more back and forth. <laughs> oh yes, then then it becomes a, a chatty email, and then maybe you should. Uh install some some kind of a, a slack uh, chat channel that also has his own his own set of problems right um, yeah yes uh, if if the if the email is so fast that you receive it before you you actually sent the the original one if you receive the answer then then i call it a lightning reply and you know sometimes you get a reply that just says yes but in the in the email that you sent you actually had three three questions and so you don't know if, if the yes is for all of them, or maybe you just read the, the first thing and you just answered the first very quickly and then you, you ignore the rest. Yeah, so yeah, that, yeah, I guess, yeah, that, no, that, that captures better. What I was trying to say is like, if you think you're saving time by just writing yes in response to an email, like you might be actually wasting a lot of the other person's time and your own time as well. People who use the subject line for the content of the email, for example, are I think typically typically fooling themselves into thinking that they're being a real like hard-nosed go-getter, but actually they're they're really just like signaling that they're unprofessional and they don't they don't even value their own time. One thing one thing I like about about one of the examples of the anti patterns that you talk about is the room booking email. Mm. So this is kind of like a, this is a specific example of a higher level category of like, can you please do something that I, for me, that I could have done in the time it took me to write this email? Uh, yes, of course, the email, email is, uh, is also about who, who is delegating things to other people and who, who has the power to, to do things that are, are written in the email. And sometimes it, it's actually not so simple to, 
direct uh, the message to the person that is actually supposed to do things. But but uh, of course, if you if you just have an email infrastructure and you use it to run everything in your organization, then uh, you miss out on, on things like, for example, uh, tablets that are next to the door of the meeting room, and then you can just swipe them to reserve them before you enter the room. Right? Uh, those those are perks of 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 organizations that uh, have graduated be beyond just using email for everything. And uh, yes, reserving rooms by email is uh, unfortunately something that is still happening in, in many places around the world. Um, you also have a great, I mean, the, I should say that the, the book is basically, you know, sort of a really great sort of fun list of these anti-patterns, um, one, of, one of which is um, Dear Typo. And, and I'm just looking at it now. Dear Typo, I could not care less how to spell your name right, uh, is a great one. That's that's one thing I've, I've, I've always found. So, I mean, we all make mistakes, right? But there's a certain kind of mistake that betrays the fact that someone hasn't tried. Well, this is also part of my personal history, right? People have a hard time to, to spell out my name sometimes. And uh, then I can tell uh, whether they made an effort, for example, just to copy paste my name and, and put it in the reply. But that's also a suggestion for, for people that write email tools. Right. Maybe the, the tool should be smart enough to, to help you with that, right? to, to, to be able to spot these kind of stupid mistakes. And, uh, and of course, um, uh, academics, uh, you know, that's the name is pretty much the only thing that we have. So that's our personal brand, if you will. And so if you make a mistake in the typo, it's really, it gets really personal pretty, pretty soon. Yeah, that, that reminds me, this is sort of like very much a detail, but one of the like, one of the most important professional sort of tricks I ever learned was never type what you can cut and paste. Um, mm -hmm. Like never type what you can cut and paste. Uh, and uh, that that really helps, particularly with respect to names. And there's, I mean, because the name particularly in, in, a, in, a, in a communication, like an email comes first, it's the first thing people see. And so if you do something wrong with someone's name, like already their confidence is shot that you're a worthwhile interlocutor. <laughs> Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, I'm just sort of looking at, uh, I mean, if, if you, if you could give people, if you, if someone is listening to this and they're going, yeah, okay, what, what, what would, what can you, what would your like sort of high level 60 second advice be to somebody who feels buried by email all the time? What would you suggest that they do to change that situation for themselves? Well, okay. So I take it that you are from the, the recipient perspective that you, you're faced yeah. with this flood, uh, incoming flood of emails. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually have five, uh, five advice points of advice that I give in the book. So the first one is, uh, that you can use uh, delete. So if you, you know, when in doubt, just delete it. And if it's important, it will come back anyway. Uh, the second one, it's uh, it's an, the button next to delete is called uh, forward or delegate, so you can actually bounce the email somewhere else. Uh, the third one is uh, deny, so you can always say no. And uh, the fourth one is not so nice because you you can uh, you know if you delay it, if you just wait to answer the email, you know emails have a tendency to pile up, and then there is a risk that uh, you will never go back to that one, and the sender will be unhappy because it uh, doesn't get uh, a replay uh, a reply and of course uh, when everything else runs out uh, then you still have to do it right so that's the final thing when when you run out of options then somebody has to take care of the email now in related to to the to the delay case there is one uh, anti-pattern that i actually uh, i'm very proud of the way that i name it uh, that is called the regret which is actually re column regret uh, which is the email you put off responding 
since you want to give it a full attention and uh, you know, invest a lot of time in the answer, but you never have the time and you never answer, giving the sender that you, the impression that you don't care. But this is the most important thing that is sitting in the inbox. You just haven't had a chance uh, to, to do it. And that's a regret uh, email anti-pattern. Uh, and I guess my last question would be, um, can you uh, talk a little bit about the, the email from God, which I, I really love that, that name myself. Oh, okay. So the, the, that one is the email that comes from the very top of the organization. And uh, it comes uh, when you never, you know, at unexpected times. And it has uh, very big uh, announcements that impact uh, the whole organization. And, uh, you know, it can really literally, when you get that email, you can hear the noise of uh, thousands of people, uh, you know, stopping in the tracks and then maybe uh, switching their priorities and doing something that they are uh, supposed to be doing. So it's very powerful to have such, such uh, you know, broadcasts. Uh, but, uh, you know, it can also, if, if abused, people uh, start to ignore it. And, uh, you know, you, you have uh, unintended consequences. So when you, when you send an email from that position, you have a very big responsibility. So you, you need to uh, be, be careful what, what you ask the people to do. Yeah, that's that's really great. I I um, have to share an anecdote. I once I remember getting an email from God, which was uh, the announcement that the CEO of the global investment bank that I worked for had changed, and it came with the instruction that we all needed to start wearing all the, all the all the men needed to start wearing ties. And our our organization had been kind of known for the fact that we only wore ties to meetings, like business ties, business suit ties, but otherwise we didn't wear them. And the CEO was kind of taking, the new CEO was taking the opportunity to announce that now he was going to whip us all into shape or whatever he thought he was communicating by doing that. But it very much was like, you could like, like everything stopped when everybody got this email and you could hear like a thousand minds worrying, like, what does this mean? Why make this change? You don't understand. I mean, and in particular on the part of some people's cases, like you don't understand this was a way of being aggressive, not a way of being lazy. Uh, but anyway, yeah, the email from God, I think we've all gotten those and we all know what that's like. And so to, to all of you, you uh, God emailers out there, please be sparing and keep in mind what happens when you send those. Um, uh, so you've got uh, so another book, which is, um, you've got a couple of other books, but one of them is uh, the Software Architecture Visual Lecture Notes book. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, what that book is um, all about and, and where it came from. Okay, so the, the Software Architecture Visual Lecture Notes book is uh, the, the one that basically was born thanks to the lockdown because that was, um, the I wanted to, to write a book uh, about my, I teach software architecture since now more than a decade and it's probably about time that I wrote down uh, everything that I, that I tell my students and I had the opportunity to do it because I recorded on my lecture uh, last year. And then over the summer, I spent time transcribing and editing uh, the, the text. So basically, it's literally visual lecture notes because you will see uh, all of the slides that I use in the, in the lecture and also underneath basically what I'm, what I'm saying when I, when I present those slides. And it turns out that uh, people, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, almost seven, 700 pages. So you have a whole university lecture on the topic. So it's very big. Uh, so it should be taken in, in small doses, right? We, we, we go over the content uh, usually in 14, 14 weeks. And uh, 
basically now I'm, I'm using it this year as a textbook with my, with my students. And I, I also heard that uh, it's been adopted at the University of Delft and uh, also the, um, the new institute uh, that they have in, in uh, Schaffhausen in, in Switzerland. Also, they have a new lecture on software architecture that will be based on this book. Oh, on, and on, on the ebook? Yes. Okay, okay, okay. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really great book. Um, I didn't know actually that that's fascinating that its origin is from recorded lectures as a result of the, as a result of the pandemic. Well, I, I wish I wish I could say that uh, when I, when I give my lecture, I, I I say such coherent sentences. But of course, the, <laughs> the editing cycle and probably can can also be further edited. But that's the beauty of of LeanPub, right? Like, I I wasn't sure whether people would be interested to read uh, such a book, and then I I got a, a very good confirmation that this is indeed uh, a valuable topic. So it's really great that. I cannot just uh, share this with my students, but I now I can share it with students of software architecture all over the world. I was wondering if you could take a moment just to talk a little bit about what software architecture is to those who might be new to software and programming and might not be aware of what, what architecture is in the software space. So, so software architecture is a, is a relatively new discipline within uh, software engineering. And you can already see in these names that uh, both engineering and architecture are, are terms that in computer science we borrow from uh, other uh, disciplines and we bring in and apply to software. So what do software architects do? There are uh, two different interpretations. There is the ivory tower model in which in a large organization, you have a dedicated group of architects that uh, dictate and, and standardize and, and promote and uh, try to steer what the rest of the developers are doing. They make the so-called big design up front, and then the rest are supposed to implement it somehow. Uh, there is, uh, of course, um, uh, how do you say, this, this doesn't get a really good reputation in terms of the, the software architecture. You, you might hear things like uh, architects are developers that no longer know how to write code. But in, in reality, every developer is an architect. Uh, because the, everybody that writes code is actually making decisions. And these decisions are going to affect the quality of the resulting system. So this is something that even if you just uh, limit yourself to writing code, uh, every line that you write behind it has assumptions, has decisions, and most important, has a reason why you decide to write the code in that way. And unfortunately, when you write the code, uh, you don't have uh, actually a place uh, to document uh, the reason. Uh, and uh, other people that read the code might not be so smart to understand what you were thinking when you wrote that code. And so over time, the code stays there, the developers come and go, and the knowledge, the architectural knowledge behind that code is lost. So the idea of uh, promoting this type of uh, practices helps people to reason about what they're doing. And uh, you know, we also say that uh, one hour of architecting can save you a couple of months of coding because uh, you make decisions beforehand. And, and then when you're sure about what you want to do, you actually go and implement it. And I was wondering if we could maybe talk about software architecture in the context of um, microservices, uh, because it seems to me like that's a really, I mean, I, I mentioned before we started recording, I'm the I'm LeanPub's resident non-technical person, even though I deal with, with code all the time. So I, I often come at these things from the kind of like naive point of view, but um, I've had the experience myself of sort of leading a project where there were lots of microservices being used and they got out of sync uh, and all of a sudden something stops working. And, you know, this is a, this is a consequence not only of, um, 
not doing the architect, getting the architecture right, but getting the processes right. Because the decisions that you make about how to handle all the little, all the, I mean, I say little, all the services that you're using as part of your product or service, um, if you don't put them together in the right way, you can't handle them in the right way. And I think, I think you talk about, um, is it BCA? Um, you, you mean in the book or? Oh, no, no. Uh, when you, you, you had a talk on, on microservices about this that I'm trying to tie into talking about, about software architecture. I think I might be getting it. Ah, okay. So basically, uh, let's, let me answer in, in, in two parts. So okay. uh, microservice, microservices is sort of uh, one of the latest uh, trends in, in software architecture. So I think it's important that students uh, are exposed to this. Although it's uh, it's still something very new, so there are many interpretations uh, floating around on what you should and or you shouldn't do when you adopt this type of architectural style. And uh, if you if you look at the book, uh, I actually present a lot of ideas that are uh, commonly associated with microservices as part of uh, you know from a historical point of view. So we we actually go over the development of microservices starting from software components and component-based software engineering. That's actually a very old uh, concept. Uh, so the idea of building a modular architecture where you can break down the monolith into many different uh, subcomponents, well, that's not, not uh, something that has been invented a couple of years ago. This has been already part of computer science uh, since, since a long time. Uh, so in, um, in the development that, that, uh, that we make in the lecture to get to microservices, we associate abstractions that have to do with architecture, for example, components, uh, but also connectors, interfaces, or, or um, services, and microservices. Uh, we associate these abstractions with uh, the most relevant quality that they deliver. Right? So for example, if you adopt a component-based approach, you get modularity because you have different parts, and then you can decide uh, which parts are you going to write, which parts are you going to reuse. But if you want to reuse them, you need interfaces. And uh, interfaces give you an abstraction that separates the implementation of the component with, uh, with the way that you actually work with it. And that makes it easier to, to, to reuse it. But interfaces existed before microservices. Um, then then we, we have interfaces, we need to connect them together. And uh, there used to be something called the shared database connector, where you basically have uh, all the software divided up in nice different components, but then all the components end up communicated indirectly through the database. So you can, the advantage is that you can have hire uh, an expert database administrator who's going to handle all the data storage problems and the software that you write will just use that. And this is sort of uh, a big no-no uh, in, in, uh, in microservice architecture because the moment that all the software in your, in your, in your architecture depends on the single database, uh, then the moment that you touch this database, then everybody is affected. So with microservices, it's important that you have a split the database and uh, every microservice has their own local uh, local storage for, for the state. You know? Now, uh, when you do that, in, uh, in our research, we show that there is some, uh, some important impact on the, on, the, on the reliability of, of your data because uh, it's simple to back up a single database. You just uh, stop everything, take a copy, make a safe backup, and then you can continue working. But if you partition your database and every microservice has their own database, well, uh, you, it's much more difficult to tell all the microservices, please stop 
And uh, whatever you're doing, we have to take a copy of the database and we have to all do it at the same time uh, so that we can take uh, something that is called a consistent snapshot of, uh, of, of the data that you have uh, spread out through your system. So what we have shown with this uh, backup uh, autonomy and consistency theorem is that uh, when you adopt microservice architecture, you can only have two. You can only back up uh, and have autonomy, but then you lose consistency because you will recover from the backup in an inconsistent state. Or if you try to take a consistent snapshot, you lose autonomy, which is the defining property of microservices, right? Every microservice is supposed to have an independent life cycle and uh, uh, be able, for example, to make its own decision on when to back up uh, its, its own state. So that's uh, something that, uh, uh, yeah, maybe I should add it to the book now that I, that I, that I presented. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I'll, I'll, so I'll, we I'll, have it in some papers, but I didn't make it into the book. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll make sure to add a link to the YouTube talk um, uh, where you talk uh, about, and that, so BCA is backup autonomy and consistency. And you talk very, it's very clearly about how you can get two of three. Uh, it's one of those kinds of situations. And yeah, it's, it's, I just found it really interesting, the issue of, of timing, right? So when you're doing your backup, for example, what you, I mean, I'm just sort of interpreting a little bit about what you said, but like, if you're going to do your backup of your, you've got, a, you've got all this, all these microservices all working together at a particular point in time when you do the backup you have to tell if you if you want to achieve i think it's if you want to achieve consistency you have to tell all the service microservices stop updating yourselves i'm backing yes. you up now but that's then you lose the autonomy of the microservice just working on its own because now you're telling it you're giving it an instruction yes you, you you're giving instruction to all of them together so they, mm -hmm. they sort of stop for during the backup they stop being actually these uh, multiple independent entities and they become a single thing mm -hmm. that's no longer a microservice architecture during that time yeah no that's just like conceptually it's just so fascinating um and and you talk you talk in uh, also about eventual inconsistency uh well that that is what uh, what basically happens right when when you before disaster strikes Everything is fine because you, even, even though the backup is not consistent, you still haven't lost the data. But uh, a lot of people discover these things only after they recover, right? They say, well, we have backups. Uh, so they just restart everything from the backups. And uh, then that's when they notice that there are some gaps, right? Things that uh, at the time you were taking the backup, they were still in flight and they didn't make it into the, into the snapshot and then you lost them. Uh, and I was wondering also if you could talk a little bit about hypermedia and what that is. Okay, well, hi hypermedia is one of the, the designing principles, the fundamental principles of uh, of the web, or in in general, hy hypertextual type of type of system. Right, this is something which allows you to build a decentralized architecture because you don't have to uh, know in advance everything that there is you know, all, all the elements that you have, but you can just start from one side and uh, follow links and traverse uh, the, the system uh, and, and incrementally grow uh, the knowledge that you have about the system. So this helps you to scale uh, an architecture, uh, make it really, really big. Uh, because thanks to hypermedia, you don't need a center place in which to, to store the list of everything uh, that is part of the system. You just have to be able to make sure that there are enough links so that you can uh, find uh, find various pieces. It's it's also used um, uh, when you have um, what we call conversations, 
for multi multi message uh, exchanges a little bit like when you when you, when you do an, an email an email conversation in in this case hypermedia helps you because uh, it's a very nice way to uh, split the responsibility of, of who is responsible for deciding where the conversation should go so to, to be more concrete um, you you ask me a question i give you an answer that contains a certain number of links and i tell you these are the options this is where you can go and then when you receive this answer you it's your decision which link do you want to follow so as a as a as a service i can influence your decision by telling you these are the links that i think would be interesting for you but then it's the ultimate responsibility of who receives the links to uh, decide whether they want to follow one or, or more, or maybe they stop, right? And they don't have necessarily to use that. And the latest book that you've published on, on LeanPub is uh, Beautiful APIs, which is the visualizations of APIs. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about that book and where what the origin was of, of that idea. Well, the, the, the origin was uh, a part of this uh, research project that, that we have uh, in collaboration with the University of Vienna and also, um, let me say, a technical university of uh, uh, Rapperswiller St. Gallen. So we have a project that we have been working on APIs for many years. We have been, um, well, it was supposed to be a book, but it will be a book at some point, but it's called uh, Microservice API Patterns. And, and uh, as part of this uh, pattern uh, research, we, we actually looked at many examples of APIs. And uh, finally, uh, I was presenting some, some of these, in, actually it was in Vienna Christmas time. And uh, I came up with the idea of uh, taking out of the whole specification of an API, which is a huge amount of information, lots of details. I was trying to look for something essential and in case of uh, web-based APIs, right, there's a book about uh, HTTP-based APIs, there used to be a point in time in which people actually took advantage of the expressiveness of the HTTP protocol, and they would describe APIs as being a set of uh, resources, a set of paths, a set of links, right, that you can use with Ivermedia, by the way. Mm -hmm. And then you can also say to each these, uh, these links, what kind of methods, uh, what kind of operations you can perform on them. For example, you can use GET, and then you can read something out of the API, or you can use put, and you can write something into it. You can delete, and then you can make part of the API. Uh, you can clean it up. You can make things disappear. So the visualization is based on the concept of a tree, uh, but it's a tree that is like a Christmas tree. So it has a little uh, hanging uh, circle of, you know, uh, how, how do you say it's a um, ball? No, the yeah, oh, a, bulb, a bulb, a bulb. Yeah, these bulbs. Maybe right? a bulb, so, yeah. And, and these bulbs represent the methods that are associated with, with the resources, and you find the resources traversing a path on, on the tree. So it's kind of, a, of course, an abstract visualization. APIs are much more complicated. But if, uh, you know, this is ready enough to, to spot uh, lots of interesting patterns and, and things that people do quite commonly when, when they design such APIs, and we, and we have collected uh, almost 100 different examples, uh, and there, there's more where they come from because they're actually a real world uh, API. So there are APIs that we find on open source repositories and people leave the descriptions there so we can extract the visualization from, from, the, from the API description. And we, we show, uh, you know, you can imagine it's a little bit like going to an artistic exhibition. Uh, you know, you enter the first room, you see a very simple tree and then the tree gets more and more complicated. And then we also have the final part, which 
is a bit darker because we also show things that uh, should be maybe better left unseen, but sometimes <laughs> you also want, want to see designs that are a bit uh, unusual. Let's put it that way. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's really interesting just to sort of flick through uh, seeing these these structures of all these different APIs. And so they were they were generated using uh, a, an app of some kind. Yes, yes, that's part of our research. We are building visualization tools. Yeah. We have uh, we have tools to visualize APIs in in two D in three D. Uh, we 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 literally take the notion of API landscape. You know, when you have actually lots of APIs that you have to manage, and then since the APIs are visualized as trees, we talk about the API forest as a, as a three D visualization where you you can move around and you can spot uh, similar APIs or outliers or right? APIs that stand out because they are designed in a, in a particular way. So we try to make it easy for people to. Uh, spot them and, and compare them with, with other ones. So yes, the, the book, uh, you, you can sort of say, maybe I have to uh, share some, some of the royalties with, uh, with the algorithm that I wrote, but since I wrote it myself, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's okay. But it, it's, uh, it's a visual book, so don't expect to... Uh, the, the software architecture book is full of text. The, this one is, is just uh, illustrated, let's put it that way. But it's also complementary because in the, in the software architecture book we talk about uh, there is one chapter on interface and API design, and this other book shows you lots of examples uh, that that go with it. And um, just before we move on to the last part of the interview, where you talk about your experience writing um, uh, and lean pub books, um, uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the connection between your work and and blockchain that you mentioned earlier. Uh, well, blo blockchain. Um, you can see it as a, as a special kind of software connector that you could use in your, in your architecture. For example, when you run out um, of, uh, of a place to put a database that everybody can access, then you can partition and replicate the database everywhere. And so you, you have this uh, trust emerging of, uh, of the copies that everybody is keeping and everybody is cont continuously validating, uh, also you know, wasting a lot of energy in the process. Um, and uh, yeah, as part of the, the research project, we're trying to see how we can use this uh, to program uh, business processes or uh, to, to have a way, you know, one, one problem of business processes is that if they run inside your company, then, then you should have a place where you can keep track of them. But when the processes are uh, involve multiple organizations and these organizations don't trust each other, uh, then the blockchain could be a solution to, to have a place to keep track of the process that is uh, at the same time, in the middle, so it's in in a in a in a common place, but it's also spread out so that everybody keeps track of their own copies. Okay. Oh, that's really interesting. And yeah, so just just moving on to the last part of the interview. Um, so you 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 uh, showed up on LeanPub a little while ago. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, how you if you if you remember how you found out about us and uh, what um, convinced you to give LeanPub a try. It's it's been a a very long time. So. It's, um, I think I was sort of waiting for LeanPub to, to happen right? because we, we actually um, was not directly involved, but there, there was a project, a European project, uh, doing research on, on something called, uh, not LeanPub, but it was called at the time LiquidPub. It was uh, managed by a good friend that at that time used to be at the University of Trento, uh, Fabio Casati. And, uh, the, the, the idea was uh, to study the impact of the web on scientific publishing. And uh, there was this idea of saying, well, we have a liquid uh, scientific paper, we have a liquid book. And the idea is that, of course, you don't print it, but you can keep updating it. 
And uh, of course, you can also make it available before it's finished. Right? And that's also what we do when we have scientific publications. We, we write uh, the first draft, we submit it, we get reviews, we iterate, and then eventually it gets frozen and handed off to, to the publisher. So uh, what if uh, this process would never stop, right? What if you could uh, start with a small paper and keep uh, working in, on it forever during the, during the whole dissertation? You can keep track of all the stages that you go through and uh, you, you have a chance to, to make explicit the feedback that you get and, and people can see the history. At the moment, this is a sort of a hidden process and it's also a frozen process. We, we call those the classical books, or solid books, right? Because once you print them, then you cannot uh, easily uh, change them. And that was sort of what I, I really liked about uh, Limpub, the fact that if, if there is a mistake, uh, you, you can fix it uh, with, um, instantly, basically. There is no delay between the time that you're ready with the book and uh, when you click publish, it's, it's there and you keep, keep, keep evolving. And the people that buy it, they get uh, updates for free. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful uh, uh, design solution to, to make it possible for, uh, for people um, uh, not, not just to, to take the book as a snapshot in one point in time, but to keep uh, iterating over it. And uh, some, some people are a bit uh, skeptical of buying books that are not complete. So I may, say, I may ask myself, right, do I really want to do it? But also in the past, um, uh, many successful writers uh, would actually publish books uh, in uh, installments. Right? You, you don't publish them as a book, you publish them as part of magazines and every month you have to write the next chapter. And some, some would actually split the book and publish it like this uh, when after the book was finished, but others would actually start writing the first chapter, getting the reaction from the, from the audience and then seeing whether it's worth uh, continuing to write the story and develop uh, the characters for a couple more chapters, and may maybe at the time they started writing, they didn't have they had didn't have a clear idea where they wanted to go, and how you know, the story would end. So this this model is also what uh, this you know makes uh, LinkUp special. Uh, the other one, the other nice feature is the fact that you don't have DRMs, right? I'm uh, very very skeptical about this this type of uh, technology, and so also aligns with, uh, with what I believe in. Uh, and it's also um, based on the experience that I have with other publishers, basically it's super fast, right? Uh, I have some other books that are classical books in print and it took a very long time before, you know, between the, the moment that we said as author, the book is done and when the book was, was actually published. So yeah. Limpub is really, is really fast. Yeah, thank you very much for sharing all that. I hadn't I hadn't heard of LiquidPub before, but I'm looking at the liquidpub.org uh, website from I assume quite some time ago now, and it's it's really interesting. I mean, you know, the subject of scientific publication could be the subject of an entire podcast, not just one one episode, but an entire podcast, and I'm sure it is um, out there. But um, it's a it's a particularly fraught space, partly because um, of the cost of some of the the sort of like you know big name publications has become a bit of a controversy in the last few years. Uh, but also because, you know, often people who are doing scientific publications are academics and are looking for, for tenure and promotion and, and, and accolades and things like that. And so, um, you know, how you publish can be really important. And then it's, it's only kind of people who are kind of, at least for part of, part of their work 
operating on a bit of the fringes will do experimentation. But often in, until you get to the point in your career where you're secure, you have to be, you have to be as, as sort of like conventional as everybody else is in order to get ahead. And so the experimenting isn't something that, as, as from what I understand, isn't something that you necessarily do for most of what you do at the beginning of your career. Uh, yes, no, that, that's, uh, that's correct. Yes, that's, that's exactly the way it is. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and and it's sort of you know the the sort of you know yeah anyway we could we that, but we'll leave that for another another time. But yeah, thank you for sharing all that. Um, and um, yeah, I guess uh, and I'll include links to to all the things we've talked about in in the episode uh, in the transcription uh, for anyone listening. You can find it on on our website. But yeah, just the, the last question I always like to ask everyone, and, and you've been around, uh, who's a guest on the podcast, who's also a Lean Pub author, is um. And you've been around for a while. So if there's one thing, if there's one thing we could fix for you on LeanPub that really bugs you, or one thing we could build for you that you would really wish we had, uh, is there anything you can think of that you would ask us to do? Well, it's uh, it's hard to say because I, I have been uh, tr- following all your uh, iterations, and every time it gets better. And and you can see that it's built by people that care about what they do because they they're really careful about the author experience and. Uh, Especially if you compare it to to other publishers, uh, the, the the way the website works, it's it's uh, spectacular. Oh, well, thank uh, you. I you know maybe maybe one uh, one tiny little thing. Uh, it's um, it's great. What is great about LeanPub that I didn't mention is also the fact that uh, you can set a limit on the price, but then people can also increase uh, or you know there is sort of a range. So it's it's interesting because it's one of the most difficult decisions is of course how to set the price of the book. But uh, the second, I think, important decision is also how to design the cover of the book. And, uh, you know, there is, of course, professional graphics designer that can do that. But, uh, you know, since, since on LeanPub, you just have to put uh, some kind of an image that represents uh, the, the, the virtual cover, it could be interesting to, to support some kind of uh, A-B testing. So where you could, for example, uh, put various versions of the cover and then, for example, see which one seems to attract uh, the people's attention. At the moment, you have to sort of do it uh, yourself, right? You, you start, uh, try out, and then maybe you have to change. Um, yeah. But maybe the, 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 the platform could actually make it a bit more easy. Yeah, thanks very much for that suggestion. That's really interesting. That's something that actually it, it's it's um we haven't we <clears throat> excuse me we thought about that a long time ago. Yeah, currently currently anyone who's familiar with LeanPub will know that you know if you if you sort of don't do anything, then we do a sort of black and white cover page, which is the title, the subtitle, and your name, um, which isn't really much of a cover at all. And there's definitely more we could do on that. When it comes to A/B testing book covers, the one of the interesting challenges is that since it's tied since the virtual as you say the virtual cover or image is tied to a particular product iterating on the image if you have multiple images associated with the same product people can get confused mm-hmm. um they're like oh i thought i bought this one but then i bought that one and and so that's that's actually it's a, it's a like it's i mean of, of course people sort of in this kind of space are like let's a b test let's a b test let's a b test but if you're a b testing cover images for an actual product that's available it can you know people might buy it and then go hey i thought i bought this but i meant to buy that because I'm seeing a different cover. And so for example, if someone, if someone, if you're if you're iterating on covers and someone buys the one cover in their lean pub library, do they see that cover forever? Mm-hmm. Or can or can you change it? Now currently, if you if you update your cover, you update your cover and it's updated in their library. But you know, do we then if 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 someone's if an author's been iterating with like 50 different book covers, are we somehow doing some kind of temporal management of 50 different covers? 
uh, you know, definitely. I, re I realize that yeah. that's probably why you're not doing it already. Yeah, and that's uh, that might be a good reason for that. Yeah. Oh no, that's that's. I mean, it's it's just because you know we 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 could think it through and come up with a with a solution. Um, but but that is that is an inherent difficulty if we ever do offer something like that. But but definitely whether whether or not there's A/B testing or something like that, the idea of us actually offering authors options other than the black and white default cover, uh, you know maybe maybe you know some something just that just looks nicer um or does some kind of algorithmic thing with some design or something like that to give someone a unique a unique pattern in the background or something like that is definitely something that we could really help with because um you know people do judge a book by its cover and yes that that is yeah. uh that is a fact and you agree i agree with you that the, the cover has a strong identity factor so once once you yeah once you get used to that cover seeing it change it's it makes you wonder about what happened to the rest of the book. Yeah, yeah, and and but also, but Barry, and this is very, this is why we leave this part of the interview for the end because it's very much in the weeds. But you know, LeanPub is a platform for you know self-publishing in-progress books, right? And so, even if you're a university professor, um, you know, people might be like, "Wait a minute!" Like, I mean, I've got to have a lot of confidence in you to pay some money for a book that's unfinished that you're publishing yourself. And so, in that context, uh, having a really good cover really goes a long way to communicating to people that you're serious about what you're doing, you're good at it, and you've thought it through, and you're, you know, yeah, you're committed to it. So it's particularly important in in our case, uh, or for, for lean pub authors to, to try and put in the work to have a good cover. And it's definitely something we could do a lot more to help with. Well, uh, thank you very much for taking the time out of what I'm sure is a beautiful evening <laughs> uh, in the mountains in Switzerland to, to, to talk to us here today on the podcast. And thank you very much for being a lean pub author. Thank you very much, Len. It uh, was great to meet you and uh, looking forward to more books published uh, with you. Thanks very much. And thanks, as always, to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.